Let's turn to 2 Peter without further delay. I have an extra page of notes today, so we better just make haste, make haste. We're going to study today verses 10 through 13 of 2 Peter chapter 3. So let's read those together and then we'll pray. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Seems like Peter really wants to emphasize that, doesn't he? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that uh, every, every word is important. In fact, Jesus said not one jot or tittle would pass away until all these things be fulfilled. And even then they will not pass away because the word of the Lord endures forever. We ask you to bless this time of study in your word, Lord. Just We ask you to feed our spirits, speak to our hearts, transform us by the renewing of our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you probably noticed last week, we've moved into this section where Peter is really honing in on the end times, the last days, the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. And so the very first words here in verse 10, the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord will come. In spite of the mockers, we've been talking the last couple weeks about the warning from Peter that in the last days there would be scoffers, mockers, mocking the idea that Christ is coming again, trying to make the case that it's been 2,000 years since he came the first time, assuming you even believe that he came the first time. It's, it's really an historical fact, but we always have certain individuals who want to deny the truth. And so there have been those over the years who have put forth the speculation that Jesus was never even really a historical figure, but that's just a fact of human history. It's, it's undeniable. But then even if you acknowledge that he did come 2,000 years ago, I would say the vast majority of people on the planet today either don't believe he's coming again or they really hope he's not coming again. But Peter says, but in spite of all that, in spite of the scoffers, the day of the Lord will come. And as we discussed again last week from verse 9, any perceived delay, again, the idea that he has delayed his coming is just a human perception based upon the fact that we are finite beings, at least in our physical bodies. If you're a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer finite. You are eternal. You have eternal life in Christ. 
But this idea that Christ has delayed his coming as a human uh, perspective. A thousand years is as a day. One day is like a thousand years with God. God operates outside of the realm of space and time because he is eternal. But any perceived delay is a result of God's desire that none should perish. But Peter's saying, in spite of all that, take it to the bank. He is coming. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness or slowness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So whereas the scoffers would portray this perceived delay as a negative thing, Peter portrays it as a positive thing because the longer God waits to send Christ back, first of all, for us, and secondarily, with us at the end of the tribulation, he's doing it because of his love for mankind and his desire that none should perish. And again, when we talk about perishing, we're talking about in the eternal perspective of eternal death versus eternal life. Now, we discussed this also last week. The day of the Lord. That's what we read here in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come. And as we discussed last week, the day of the Lord is not a single day. But it's a series of events. Now, some would narrow that down to the millennial kingdom of Christ on the earth. The thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, which the Bible says will happen. It will be literal. At the end of the millennium, which we're going to talk about here in a moment, then time will be no more. Then we will enter into eternity. Now you and I, as immortals, ruling and reigning with Christ during the tribulation, we will already have passed on beyond the realm of time and space, as Christ has done in his risen, resurrected, immortal, imperishable, incorruptible body. But for those who are alive on the earth and enter into the millennium as mortals, then time will still exist for them. And that's why we define this millennial reign of Christ as the, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. At the end of the millennium, there will be no more time, period. The day of the Lord is not a single day, but a series of events. Now, my understanding as is the understanding of many others, I believe, who study the scriptures and the uh, study of eschatology, the end times, the last days, is that the day of the Lord encompasses more than just the millennial kingdom of Christ. It really encompasses first, I believe, the rapture of the church, the catching away of the saints, and then the seven-year period of tribulation upon the earth, the final week of Daniel's 70 weeks from Daniel chapter 9, and then the millennial reign of Christ. All of these, I believe, constitute what the Scriptures speak of as the day of the Lord. Now, the, the real focal point of the day of the Lord is judgment. The outpouring of God's wrath on an unbelieving world. But again, God has delayed that. For the last 2,000 years, from the time that Christ came and died on the cross for our sins, and he's given this planet, this human race, 2,000 years, 
that lengthy opportunity for repentance and for yielding and submitting to God, the creator of all things. But at some point, the grace period has to come to an end. The day of the Lord. It's, there are 24 Bible verses, at least, that use this specific phrase, the day of the Lord. Isaiah 2.12 For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. So, again, the outpouring of God's wrath, judgment, and the humbling of the human race. The humbling of the human race that believes it doesn't need God, doesn't want God, can handle it all by themselves. In fact, many believe if there really is a God, and they're not sure if there is, that they could probably do a better job than he could. So, the proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Joel 2.31, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's why we saw recently over the past couple of years so much focus on this uh, repeated blood moons and eclipses that we've seen. And we've watched some videos, some movies about that. There have been some books written about it. And uh, quite possibly these are indicators that we are very, very close to the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord, the tribulation, the second coming. Acts 2.20, Peter quoting from this verse that we just read. Peter's great evangelistic message given on the day of Pentecost, the launching of the New Testament church, 3,000 people saved. Peter says, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So again, that distinction between those who were saved and those who were lost, between the judgment of the wicked, the unrighteous, and the salvation of the saved, of the rede redemption of those who have acknowledged Christ as Lord and Savior. Peter says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. We're all familiar with that phrase. Well, why do thieves typically, now we know that uh, we live in a different world today, but typically, historically, traditionally, thievery has been an activity of the night. Jesus said that men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. They love to do their evil deeds under cover of darkness. Well, for the most part, at night, when it's dark, everyone is sleeping and unsuspecting. So Peter is telling us, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night when most people will be metaphorically asleep, unsuspecting. Again, the scoffers, well, where's the promise of his coming? He's not coming. You Christians are crazy. And as we've also discussed over the past several weeks, Sadly, many people under the umbrella of the church of Christ, the body of Christ, also make light of his return. Tell us we shouldn't really be focusing on that. 
And the result is that most will be asleep and unsuspecting when these events begin to unfold. So understand, when we read a, a, a phrase like thief in the night, again, the day of the Lord, we tend to think in terms of one day, one event, but it's not really like that. It's the unleashing of a series of events that will catch the majority of people in the world totally off guard. The chain of events involved in the day of the Lord will begin to unfold at a time when most inhabitants of the earth are asleep to the truth and the reality of Christ's coming. And as I've also pointed out more than once over the last several weeks, we might be living at a time in human history where fewer people are focused on the return of Christ than at any other time in human history. We've seen the explosion of other false religious belief systems, Islam being the primary one. Multiple articles that I keep coming across about the increase of witchcraft in our nation and around the world. In fact, you even have political candidates now invoking the help of witches to cast spells on their opponents. I heard some laughter there. It's not really funny. I'm not criticizing you for laughing, but I'm saying it's not funny. We've had covens meeting to cast spells on our president and other members of his cabinet. The woman who was just questionably elected in Arizona as the Democratic senator from Arizona, Kirsten Sinema, has invoked the help of witches in her various crusades. I don't know about you guys, but I don't recall in the past ever hearing about witches being involved in our elections. We're seeing a rise in all these things, which again is another indicator that we are in the last days. Now, you might not take those things seriously, but I know somebody that does. His name is Lucifer, and he'll take it any way he can get it. He'll listen to anybody who's willing to talk to him, and he'll do all he can to help. We could possibly be living at a time in human history, at least over the course of the last 2,000 years, where there's less excitement or anticipation for the return of Christ than there's ever been. But you know what? That's a perfect setup. Because he's coming as a thief in the night. When you least expect it. Smile, you're on candid camera. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 Paul writes to the Thessalonians, You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Why did the Thessalonians know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night? Because Paul had been faithful to teach them. They were well taught by their shepherd, the apostle Paul. He says, you know these things, guys, because you heard it from me. And then Jesus, speaking to the church of Sardis, one of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And those seven churches discussed in the first three chapters of Revelation not only represent seven literal churches that were in the region of Turkey in the first century, 
They also represent the seven different churches of human history. And interestingly enough, after Sardis comes Laodicea, the lukewarm church, which I believe is the church of today, the church of the last days, the end times. But Sardis, also known uh, by some scholars as the dead church, he writes to them in Revelation 3, 3, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Just like Peter's been telling us, I want you to remember. I'm bringing these things to your remembrance. Jesus says to the church of Sardis, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Revelation 16, 15. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. There's that old expression, caught with your pants down. I guess Jesus said it first. Throughout the New Testament, there are scriptures that speak of being alert, watchful, and ready for the Lord's return. And I think we can all see from what we read in the scriptures, it would uh, seem to be that, uh, that being caught off guard is something to be avoided at any cost. What do you think? There's a heavy emphasis in the New Testament on not being caught off guard, not being unaware, not being alert, not being watchful. And this is something we've also discussed over the past week or two. And so what do you think the enemy's strategy might be? Not only for the unbelieving world, I mean, they're already in his back pocket anyway, right? He doesn't have to spend a lot of time working on the non-believers. They're already on his side of the fence. But he's also not happy with the idea that any human being would be saved and would spend eternity in the presence of the living God. And so, I believe a great deal of Satan's energy is spent in trying to undermine the church of God, the body of Christ. I was at Hobby Lobby yesterday with my wife. I hardly ever go there. She wanted to go. I went. She said, well, they have Bibles and stuff there. I said, well, that's cool. I'll go check out all the Bibles and books. And turns out they've got a vast array of Jesus Calling materials. All the various books by Sarah Young for both young and old. Children's Bibles and books and everything Jesus Calling you can think of. Wouldn't it have been cool instead of this whole movement, which is, I believe, deceptive, the whole Jesus Calling thing, if you want to hear Jesus calling, get into your Bible. Don't read Sarah Young. Wouldn't it have been great if the whole movement was Jesus coming? That would have been cool. A whole series of books on the coming of Christ. Because He's coming. He's coming soon. And He wants us to be watchful. 
He wants us to be ready. And you can see the fruit in the church today of the absolute de-emphasis on the return of Christ. And the indulgence, the self-indulgence, the fleshly indulgences of the modern church. Because there's no awareness, there's no sense that Christ could come at any moment and would he be happy if he found me doing what I'm doing right now? Would he be happy if he found me sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend that I'm not married to? Would he be happy if he found me engaging in another type of activity such as is commonly promoted today in same-sex relationships? Would he be happy if he came back and found me intoxicated? And even though it's becoming legalized in more and more states, promoted as actually something that's healthful and beneficial. How many things has the secular world promoted as being healthful and beneficial when they actually the opposite was true? Like abortion, for example. If he came back and found me high on pot, would he... Join in? Would he say, oh, that's okay, brother, it's legal? You get my point, I guess. Revelation 3, 3, therefore, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Again, Revelation 16, 15, we already read that talking about lest he walk naked and they see his shame, he who is not ready, who, he who is not watchful. The next thing that Peter tells us, and what Peter does here in verse 10 is he crams about a thousand year, years worth of stuff into one verse. The day of the Lord, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Now this, again, this is why we have to study all the scriptures. In fact, when you talk about prophecies in the Scripture pertaining to the first coming of Christ and the second coming, often they're together in the same verse or the same passage. And so you have to study it and understand that first part of this verse might be speaking of the incarnation, the nativity, the birth of Christ, His first coming, and by the time you're at the end of the verse, you're talking about the millennium. The same thing is true with this verse in 2 Peter 3.10. Because what he mentions next, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. This will take place after the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And the other events of Revelation chapter 20, Satan's final rebellion where he is loosed at the end of the tribulation to once again tempt the human race to test those who have been born during that thousand-year reign. He will be in chains for a thousand years and then released for a final testing of the human race. He will raise up an evil army and come against Christ in Jerusalem and the people of God. He will be defeated, cast once and for all into the lake of fire. This happens at the end of the millennium. The great white throne judgment. The judgment of all the wicked. So Peter's got this compacted here. 
the rapture, the tribulation, the millennium, and then the heavens will pass away with a great noise. With This is the real Big Bang theory, by the way, and it's not just a theory. This is the real Big Bang. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. And then in Revelation 21.1, after all the events encompassed in the day of the, of the Lord, Revelation 21.1, John, the revelator, John the apostle, says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, not before the millennium, after the millennium. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So Peter tells us the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. God is going to melt everything down except for you and I because we'll be with him, we'll be eternal, immortal, imperishable, incorruptible. Everything else, just like in the Old Testament, Saul failed to carry out the decree of the Lord but when the Lord would send his people in to destroy these pagan communities, these pagan people groups, because of the pollution and the corruption, the idolatry, the sinfulness, they were not allowed to take spoils. Everything had to be destroyed. It had to be purified by fire, burned, destroyed. And so at the end of time, so that we can move into eternity with absolute purity and perfection, every remnant of the old order will be destroyed. Does that make sense? So it's like sometimes when people make a fresh start in their lives. They have to leave things behind. Leave behind old friends that would drag them down. Things that would remind them of their past. You're a new creature in Christ. You need a fresh start, a new beginning. The elements will melt with fervent heat. And by the way, God's goal here, His purpose, is to melt everything down and start over with the perfect creation He had in mind in the beginning. How does the Bible start? In the beginning. How does the New Testament start? In the beginning. John, with the book of John, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Then we read both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And so we have so many different groups, special interest groups. You've got your animal rights group, your environmental groups and so forth. And in no way, shape or form would I ever endorse the abuse of animals, the abuse of our planet, our environment. But the fact of the matter is, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, as we used to say in the Jesus movement days, it's all going to burn. Because this, this current world is forever polluted and contaminated. Now, it will be restored tremendously during the reign of Christ. But nonetheless, it will be repolluted during the millennium as multiple generations are born upon the earth and we find that once again, God sees the necessity of testing the human race that one final time. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20. The earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. It's all going to burn. 
This tells us how foolish it is to become too attached to the things of this world. Verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He says since, not if. Peter wants us to know that this is a sure thing. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter whether you want it to happen or not. It is going to happen since all these things will be dissolved. It's not a matter of if, but when. And within the frame or the context of when, I would say soon. Soon, again, in the view and the perspective of eternity. The beginning of the end, the day of the Lord, is coming soon. He said, what manner of persons ought you to be? Peter is writing to believers. And so the question applies to the vast majority of us here today. I don't know every single person. I don't know every heart. My suspicion is that most of us here today are born-again believers. What manner of persons ought you to be? The implication here is that as believers, our lifestyles, our conduct, should be directly affected by the knowledge of these things. And as I said maybe a couple of weeks ago, that's probably why a lot of people prefer not to dig too deeply into the Scriptures Let's just kind of keep it on the down low. Let's just kind of chill, not get too deep, because we're accountable for what we know. Having said that, God wants us to continue to dig deeper and deeper into His Word, because as we do that, with the Holy Spirit intimately involved in the process, we get to know Him better, we get to understand his plan for us and for all of his people. We should be seeking to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then that should affect our lifestyles, our conduct. The knowledge of these things should have a direct impact on how we live, what we think, what we believe. And so this information should give us an eternal perspective, which is what God wants us to have as we live life here on earth. Notice he says, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct in godliness? So from Peter's perspective, which as I've mentioned before, is God's perspective because God breathed these words into the apostle Peter. This is the word of God. From God's perspective... Holy conduct and godliness should be a given for believers. What manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? It's a given. As believers, that's the expectation that we would be living in holy conduct and godliness. This is God's expectation for every believer. Are you convicted yet? I am. I'm convicted. I don't always conduct myself as I ought to. But this is God's expectation that we would be the type of people who have holy conduct and godliness. But it goes beyond that. He says, what 
manner of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. And he tells us in the next verse, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire. Yeah, Peter, you told us that already. Okay, but you really want us to know this, don't you? And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Knowing all these things, you should be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Holy conduct and godliness is a given. But beyond that, God expects us to, first of all, be watching for and expecting Jesus to call us home at any moment. Oh, that can't happen now. The rapture doesn't happen until after the tribulation. So I know I've got at least seven years from the beginning of the tribulation, which as far as I can tell hasn't started yet. You begin to see the problem with believing that the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation? It totally eradicates the idea that he could come at any moment. If the tribulation comes first and then the rapture, then he can't come at any moment. He can't come until after the tribulation. It just doesn't work. The catching away of the saints is imminent. That could happen at any moment because God has promised that his children were not appointed to suffer wrath. Wrath is judgment. It's a whole different ballgame from persecution. Persecution began when Cain slew Abel. How many remember that story? That's the first persecution in human history when un ungodly Cain slew his godly brother Abel. There's always been persecution. Wrath is a whole other ballgame. Noah's flood was an outpouring of God's wrath. Did Noah and his family die? No. Were they harmed in any way? No. Another example of God's wrath is Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the only one harmed in that picture in Lot's family was his wife, who, what did she do? She, she looked back. Do you see the same idea in the scriptures we're reading? Not to look back. We're to be looking up. We're to be watching for him. We're not be, to be looking back at what's happening in this world. And, oh my goodness, I sure love this place. I hate to see it go. I hate to see me go. That's looking back. God's wrath is for the wicked, the unrighteous. Again, all of sin comes short of the glory of God. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul, God no longer sees you as wicked. He never, no longer sees you as evil or unrighteous. He sees his son superimposed over you and you are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So first of all, Peter tells us as we are living our lives in holy conduct and godliness, that's expected. Beyond that, we should be watching for and expecting Jesus to call us home at any moment and for him to execute his judgment on an unbelieving world because you can't have one without the other. God is perfect in all of his ways. If he rewards the righteous, he judges the unrighteous. If he judges the unrighteous, he rewards the righteous. He is the one who is truly just. And we should be looking for that, expecting that, 
And as much as it might pain us to see the way things are going in this world, we have to realize and recognize that these things must happen so that we can be with Jesus. The other aspect here, and this is where it gets a little tricky, you think, how in the world can I, or we as believers, hasten the coming of the day of God? It's going to happen when it happens. But that, that's, that's part of the problem. Oh, let's not think about it. Let's not talk about it. Let's not be concerned with that. It'll happen when it happens. But that's not the attitude God wants us to have. Rather than say, well, it'll happen when it happens, He wants us to actually see ourselves as participating in the hastening of the day of the Lord, the coming of the day of the Lord. Again, we're only going to be able to understand to a certain extent because He's God and we're not. All we can do is look at the truth of His Word and apply it to our lives. If he wants us to see ourselves as hastening his coming, then we need to see ourselves as hastening his coming. How do we do that? First of all, by doing what he's just told us, living our lives in holy conduct and godliness. Our most important witness and testimony is the way we live from day to day because people are watching us. Even when we don't think they are, even if we hope they're not, they are. Can people see Jesus in us? Are we exemplifying His love, grace, and mercy to the world around us? Because if we are, we are hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because as people see that, then there will be those who will embrace Christ as we have embraced Christ because they see Him in you and they see Him in me. And they see the difference that God can make in your life. Secondarily, by investing our resources in things which help to build God's eternal kingdom. I mentioned last week, can you imagine if all the resources that are poured into the national religion of sports in our nation were poured into the kingdom of God, can you imagine what could be accomplished? A word that God has just hammered into my heart and mind, I can't get rid of it, I can't get it out of my head, is the word squander. How we have squandered our resources as a nation, as individuals. I am regularly convicted by that word, squander. We can hasten His coming I believe, by investing our resources and things. Resources, by the way, involve three things. Time. Some people have more time than they have money. Some people have more money than they have time. Time, energy, and money. Your time, your energy, your money. Those are the three things that you have to invest either in the things of this world or in the things of God's eternal kingdom. We have several people around here that are investing a lot of their time and energy in this place, this facility, in this ministry. And I'm very appreciative of those folks. And we could always use more. And I recently mentioned how appreciative I am of the financial support that you guys give us. We are, 
It's amazing what we're able to do and to accomplish as a church of this size because of you guys. And this is what I'm talking about. Hastening his coming by investing our resources in those things which help to build God's eternal kingdom. And again, I believe first and foremost that should be the local church. If this is your home church, obviously that would be this church. But a local body of believers where there, there is visible, tangible fruit. So many people send their money to faraway ministries that they see on TV or the radio and so forth, and it's not my place to judge who, where, when, why, and how you utilize your resources, but oftentimes there's not a lot of accountability there, and you have no way of really knowing where it's going. If you're plugged into a local body of believers and you can see tangible, visible fruit, that's a pretty good bet on where to invest. With our academy, the TV ministry, even, you know, it doesn't cost a lot, but the live streaming that we do, actually what costs more than the monthly subscription is the equipment which we recently had to upgrade and update but we could reach so many people for a relatively small investment. But these are the kind of things that I believe can help to hasten His coming as we get the word out to more and more people. Because the Bible tells us that, you know, before He comes, the gospel will be preached in every corner of the earth. And we've just about gotten there. We've reached many people groups that previously might have been considered unreachable, God has done amazing things through various, like the Wycliffe Bible translators through our own Hosanna minister here, ministry here in Albuquerque and getting the gospel out in a multitude of languages on audio, uh, originally cassette tapes and then CDs and now through various digital means and Bible translations. We have definitely lived in our lives, many of us here today, in a lifetime where we've seen the gospel multiplied over the planet like it has never been in the last 2,000 years. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys And where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as I've said before when I've read through this passage, God does not need your money. He doesn't need my money. But what he wants is our hearts. And it's a strong, sure indicator of where our hearts are at when we look at how we invest our resources And I'm just as convicted and guilty as the next guy. Are we investing them in things that can hasten his coming? Things that can build God's eternal kingdom? Are we investing them in temporary earthly things that are all going to burn? And may offer some temporary personal pleasure and benefit, but really do nothing for God's eternal kingdom. Thirdly, so we have the way we live our lives in holy conduct and godliness. 
We have the investing of our resources and things which help to build God's eternal kingdom. Thirdly, we can hasten His coming, I believe, by maintaining our sense of expectation and enthusiasm for the sure and certain return of Christ. I already mentioned watching for and expecting, but we must maintain our sense of expectation and enthusiasm expectation and enthusiasm for the sure and certain return of Christ. One, by continuing to study His Word from cover to cover. In doing this, we will have regular exposure to passages that speak of the day of the Lord and of all things related to it. Number two, or B, A, B, however you want to do it. B, by spending time, that means fellowship and relationship, with others who are also excited about the return of our Lord. Now, you might be hanging out with believers, you might be hanging out with non-believers, but regardless, if you're not hanging out with people who are excited about the coming of Christ, chances are you won't be excited about it either. C, by sharing our faith with those who do not yet know the Lord, including telling them that He is coming soon. Oh, I don't want to freak anybody out. Really? I do. One of the things that really pulled me back into relationship with God when I was about 16, I was going through a traumatic time in my life. My mother had a terminal illness. I started reading my Bible again, and all the scriptures God kept taking me to were ones about his second coming, about the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, how important it was to be ready. God really got my attention. I would propose to you that when God is preparing someone's heart to receive Christ, when God is speaking to them and drawing them to himself, nothing will get their attention like the fact that Jesus could come at any moment. Because when you embrace that understanding, you also realize either I'm ready or I'm not. So by sharing our faith with those who do not yet know the Lord, and including in that testimony, that witness, the fact that he's coming soon. One of the reasons I'm telling you this, I love you, I want to spend eternity with you, and by the way, from all the indicators that I can see in the scriptures and in the world around me, Jesus is coming very soon. My question to you, my friend, is are you ready? As we read on here in verse 12, Peter says, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The cause of which he's referring to the coming of the day of the Lord. This will be the end result of the day of the Lord, the rapture, the tribulation, the millennial reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment, the casting of Satan into the lake of fire, and then the heavens will be dissolved, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Peter reiterates the fact that the day of the Lord will result in the complete destruction of this present universe. What's God telling us? Don't get too comfortable here. This is not your eternal home. Verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, Look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
oh my goodness, God's going to destroy the whole universe. Where are we going to live? Well, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Yeah, there is some righteousness today in this world because of the presence of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit in his people. But arguably, there's more unrighteousness than there is righteousness. It's a mixed bag, and that's what makes us uncomfortable, stresses us out, living in the midst of all this unrighteousness. But the new heavens and the new earth will be a place where righteousness dwells and righteousness only. We, according to his promise, our perspective, our hope for the future is based upon the promises of God as recorded in the scriptures. How many believers can really say that on a daily basis that you're living out your life with a focus on the promises of God? Or are you all distracted by the things of this world? Are you all distracted by the daily issues that we all face? Or are you looking beyond that and you're looking at the promises of God and that's seeing that that's where your future lies? My future doesn't lie in how far I rise up the corporate ladder. My future doesn't rise in what neighborhood I wind up living in as I move up the real estate ladder and so forth. We, according to his promise, our perspective and our hope for the future should be based upon the promises of God. Again, not our emotions, our feelings, what somebody else has told us. It's the Word of God. All the promises are contained therein. And I did see a, a very beneficial little book at Hobby Lobby, for those who might be interested. It's called God's Promises. And all it is, it's a categorical list of all the promises of God in the Scriptures. Great little tool, reference guide. Depression, discouragement, whatever you're going through in life, it's got all these scriptures listed, financial, you name it. And it's just scripture, nothing but scripture. $2.99. If you want a pocket resource containing hundreds, if not thousands, of promises from God, just tell Hobby Lobby I sent you. No, I'm just... <laughs> I almost bought some and put them in the bookstore back here. Maybe I should have, but... That's a great resource because I think oftentimes we forget the multitude of incredible, amazing promises that God has given us. Let me just share two. Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. It's hard to imagine that God actually thinks about us, but he does. Says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So whenever you begin to have a little pity party, you begin to think, there's no future for me, there's no hope. Might as well go eat worms. Right? God is thinking about you, and the thoughts that he has concerning you are of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And we've talked about that future and that hope here today. And it lies not in the things of this world. 1 Corinthians 2.9 Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. 
How many of you here today love him? God's got awesome things in mind for you that you can't even imagine. Again, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of wonderful, glorious promises God has made to and for those who love him. And if more believers would spend more time reading the wonderful, glorious promises he has made, then more believers would be living the joyous lives in Christ that we should be living, and more of us would have that eternal perspective that God wants us to have. If all of our time and attention, our resources, what have you, are focused on the things of this world, it should not be surprising that we don't have much of an eternal perspective. But we can. God wants us to. And He will help us. He's given us His Word. He's given us His Holy Spirit. He's given us our brothers and sisters in Christ. All of these things to encourage us to cultivate, develop, and have that eternal perspective. We, according to His promise, not a, again, not based on what somebody else told us, not based upon our own feelings or emotions, we, according to His promise, according to His Word, look for a new heavens and a new earth. Those who are truly living according to His promise will, as they go through life, look beyond this present world to the amazing, incredible, marvelous new heavens and new earth God is planning and preparing for His children in which righteousness dwells. The new universe that awaits us in eternity will be completely void of all evil, wickedness, sinfulness, and darkness. Pure love, pure joy, perfect peace, and absolute holiness as we live forever in the very presence of the living God. And I want to close with an old hymn, these words that came to mind, Joy Unspeakable. Just one verse in the chorus I'll read for you, read with you. I have found the joy no tongue can tell. Read it with me. I have found the joy no tongue can tell. How it waves of glory roll. It is like a great overflowing well springing up within my soul. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Full of glory. Full of glory. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, the half has never yet been told. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for that joy unspeakable that we have in Christ. Father, thank you for these words here in 2 Peter chapter 3 that clearly lay out for us what your plan is for the future, the day of the Lord, the deliverance and redemption of the righteous, the judgment of the unrighteous, which could, should cause our hearts to go out to them, Lord, that we would pray for them, that we would share with them that you're not willing that any should perish. We know many will, but Lord, use us, we pray, to hasten your coming. Help us to be watchful, alert, attentive, expecting, believing, that Christ could come at any moment because he could. We want to be ready. We don't want to be asleep. We don't want to be caught off guard when you come as a thief in the night. We pray also that you'd help us to invest our resources in eternal things, things that contribute to the growth and expansion of your eternal kingdom by winning lost souls for Christ. And Lord, not only would we be watchful and alert, 
but we would flavor our speech with these things that as we do share our faith with others, that we would show an expectation and enthusiasm and a firm belief that Jesus could come at any moment. Therefore, all those within earshot of our voice, we would challenge them to be ready, to be prepared to meet their Lord and help us to be always ready and prepared. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.